welcome to our third episode of Misconduct, a true crime podcast. I'm Colleen, and I apologize in advance for my scratchy voice. Uh, joining me today is Eileen. How are you doing today, Eileen? I'm good, and we just wanted to say thank you so much for the positive feedback and reviews and supportive emails we've received. We're really glad people are enjoying the show. Yes, thank you so much. Um, I really liked reading our first review. I got really I excited. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, if stars. you uh, like us, please subscribe on iTunes. And if you really like us, you could leave us a review. Uh, the case we're talking about today is Richard Rosario. Uh, this case was brought to our attention by Emily, who is Eileen's wife. And this case gets me worked up. So I apologize in advance because um, I will probably get on a soapbox. <laughs> I think you're rightfully worked up, though. It is a frustrating case. Yeah. Uh, Richard Rosario was convicted of murdering George Colazzo in 1996 in the South Bronx. He was sentenced to 25 years to life and spent 20 years in prison while always maintaining his innocence. And he's actually still fighting for his innocence today, even though he is a free man. Yeah. So he was convicted, as Colleen said, of murdering a 17-year-old George Colazzo in uh, 1996. Richard himself was 20 years old at the time, and uh, he had a wife and two kids sentenced in 1998 to 25 years to life and his conviction was recently vacated early 2016 and then the charges actually dismissed in june slash november 2016 and uh, rosario in june actually asked for a stay of indictment but we'll get into that a little later that's why you have the june slash november so as i was researching this case dan sleepian i believe hopefully i'm saying his name right He's a producer for Dateline NBC. He investigated this case in 2014 by the request of Richard Rosario. So Dan actually investigates and helps with exonerations. Um, He does it as a completely neutral third party. And um, subsequently, Dateline had debuted a mini-series documentary, uh, mini-documentary series, rather, called Conviction. And it actually covered Dan's investigation of the case. Um, So we'll have a link to that series on our website, on the blog post, but I wanted to take you through Dan's investigation of this because uh, it's very thorough and you can touch us on so many things. So I wanted to give the details of the the murder. Uh, June 19th in 1996, midday around 1.35 p.m., um, in a parking lot in the South Bronx on the intersection of White Plains and Turnbull Avenue, George Colazzo and George's friend, Michael Sanchez, were walking through a parking lot. Two other men were walking towards them. One bumps into George, and there's a brief confrontation, some smack talk, then they go their separate ways. George and Michael make a left down the side street, Turnbull. Well, the other two men actually split up. One walks to a car that's parked on White Plains, which is the main street, and the other follows the two boys down the side street. So that was kind of odd. Something is said to George, and George turns around, and the man shoots George, George, excuse me, point blank in the face, like right above the lip. I mean, <laughs> the guy heads back to the car, and they make a U-turn and drive off. George is rushed to the hospital, but unfortunately he died. Um, there's no video. You know, this is 1996. There's no right. surveillance cameras or anything at this time. Uh, but they did have two eyewitnesses. The friend, Michael Sanchez, and Robert Davis, who was a porter. He's just a bystander sweeping the street at the time. He was just a few feet away, I guess. The police take them both to the station. Both describe the shooter as a Hispanic man in his 20s. The cops pull, quote-unquote, the books. And the books are uh, binders of mugshots of people who are arrested in the area. So if a crime happens again, you know, witnesses are asked to you know, pick someone out of a lineup, basically. Right. Uh, we actually posted the picture that was in the books of Richard Rosario on our Instagram, um, and it's a terrible picture, yeah. like in terms of quality. Right. Uh, when Eileen sent it to me to post, I was like, "Is this the picture they used to try and you know identify him?" And it's amazing to me that they would even use that picture because it's, it's it's very grainy. so bad. Yeah, yeah, so grainy and yeah. So apparently, Michael Sanchez points to that picture and points out Richard Rosario. And then a few hours later, Robert Davis, the porter that was sweeping the street, uh, points out Richard Rosario from the books as well. 
And Richard is actually in the books um, because he had been arrested in the past for stealing credit cards. Mm-hmm. So that's why he's, his face is even in there at all. At right. some point in the past, he'd been arrested. So Dan um, Sleepian, the NBC producer, in his investigation, the first thing he likes to do is, is visit uh, the person asking for the review. So he wants to visit Richard um, and get Richard's side of the story. You know, what does Richard know? What mm-hmm. is, you know, what's... So he visits Richard, and, and Richard, you know, he says he didn't even know George Colazzo. Um, he actually claims he was in Florida at the time. And the first time he even heard about this murder was two weeks after it happened. He happened to call home while in Florida, heard the cops were looking for him. So he comes home, calls the police to say, hey, you made a mistake. I was in Florida. You know, what do you want? They come to his home, like, right away, he said. They're like, they were there. So, and take him to the police station. They said, it's, you know, we seem to take you down there. Typical standard operating procedure for us. He's like, great. He goes with them to the station. He gives them his 13 alibis. Wow. One, three. Okay. <laughs> 13. <clears throat> Contact info, phone, address, etc. all of it. And also a copy, a copy of his bus ticket, all on the first day, you know. And Where so, he voluntarily went. He voluntarily to went. to the cops. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. He came home. Hey, are looking, you're looking for me. I'm in Florida. I was in Florida. And here's all my information and a bus ticket and my alibis. Okay. So he thought that would be it. You know, cops call the witnesses. They verify he would, you know, he was actually there and he'd go home. Well, he never did. Two years later, they convicted him of murder and he was sentenced to 25 to life. Okay. And I just feel like he did everything right at that point. I mean, you hear the cops are looking for you, right? You, right. I don't know what else he could have done at that point. I feel like he went above and beyond. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is in his interest to prove that he was not, you know, in New York at the time. Right. But how often do they have somebody come prepared with, you know, the, how often do the cops have come have someone come prepared with, you know, here's a stack of witnesses and evidence that you can use to clear my name. Mm-hmm. I just want to clear this up, you know? Yeah, and voluntarily come to the station. I mean, mm-hmm. you f- I feel like if you're going to commit murder, I mean, you're not going to walk into a police station. And be like, here, investigate <laughs> me more. Here's more evidence to use against me, you know? Yeah. Uh. So um, after talking to Richard, Dan um, decides to move forward with, invest- in- with investigating his case. You know, he... So to- so, of course, he's going to be getting all the police records and documents and all this stuff. So to help with deciphering the police records and um, all the cop talk that, you know, goes into these reports, he enlists the help of a friend and a former detective, Bobby um, Adelorado. <laughs> I was going to say I that. Say Adelorado. Adelorado, yeah. Sorry, Bobby. Um, <laughs> but a side note on Bobby is he is a 20-year veteran in the South Bronx police force. In 2002... Uh, he was fighting to free two innocent men who had spent 15 years in prison for a murder they didn't commit. Mm-hmm. And it was this case where he became so frustrated with the whole system and just the case in general that he actually resigned from the force. And I did think that's worth mentioning because he seems like someone who maybe went into policing for the right reasons. Yeah. You know? And just how you can get disenfranchised with the whole process he that can happen like a good guy yeah like that's a good cop in my yeah. opinion you know so after reviewing the police reports um we see the case against richard was basically based solely on the eyewitness testimony there's no physical evidence there's no forensic evidence there's no murder weapon just two guys that pointed him out from a book uh from a picture <laughs> um the police did re- in the reports mention he turned himself in and they do have a mention in the reports of the bus ticket and the alibis. However, there is no record at all in any of the police reports of an interview with any of Richard's 13 alibis by the police. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, you know, of course with, you know, this is Dan, I'm kind of taking you through like this conviction episode, right? Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because Dan asked detective Bobby, I'm going to call him, you know, what the heck? Like, wouldn't that be the first thing as a detective you do? You would say, hey, you know, let's go call these alibis. I mean, there's 13. So Bobby says they may not have had time, quote unquote. Uh, you, in, he's saying this just to try to give the, the tone that he's giving. He's saying this as like the DA. He's like, you have two eyewitnesses. You got an arrest. Case closed. That's it. That's just how things are done, you know? That's very unfortunate. 
basically saying the DA is not going to pay for you to go down to Florida to pursue those leads if you have, you know, you have an arrest and you have two eyewitnesses. Just uh-huh. case closed. Done, right? So that just, to me, was a little jarring in my opinion I guess I yeah, just felt it like it is very jarring really you know I mean 13 out but that, that would just trigger me to be like hey but I guess you know if you don't have the money they're not going to pay for it on their own the cops right no. I don't, wouldn't expect them to either but um so and also he said this and again for an example sort of way but I'm sure these are just things that Bobby has heard through the years of him being a detective mm-hmm. tell Richard to bring the witnesses up it's more important to him to prove he's innocent which is, again, very unfortunate. Yeah, you know, he doesn't have the money. So they visit, you know, and they, they go visit the scene of the crime. And um, some notes that that hit Detective Bobby pretty quickly was, this shooting didn't seem to be a random shooting. Um, you know, just the way the car was placed, they have a getaway car to him. That screams getaway car. Right. <laughs> you know, Richard... Um, didn't even know George there's and they and the police have no connection to him whatsoever I I would say that being shot in the face is very personal right because even if let's say they were just like you know bumped into each other and then like exchanged words and they were like hey you know like and and get like annoyed with each other and Mm -hmm. maybe like talk a little bit of shit maybe to each other uh to then go to your car and like kind of de-escalate from the situation and be like you know what no I'm gonna come back and shoot you you know yeah it just doesn't seem like a random bump in on the street, you know? And yeah, it does, doesn't at all. It's it's really interesting. And it's just so close in the face. I mean, that's very personal. Just Yeah. To, well, know. and then what about Michael, who his friend who was with him? Yeah. They're going to shoot one and not the other. Yeah. Just let him live. I mean, clearly both of them. Let him see what he looks like up close and then just walk away. Yeah. So, so yeah. Just screamed weird to, to Dan. Or sorry, to Bobby. To mm-hmm. And so, you know, the next natural part in Dan's investigation was let's visit the alibis, <laughs> right? That would be a good start. 13 of them, right? So he actually contacted six of them. And again, this is, you know, in 2014, it's 20 years later, but uh, they all still claim that, yes, Richard was in Florida. There is absolutely no doubt. The two main witnesses, John and Janine Torres, they say Richard stayed with them. Uh, and they clearly remember this because she was pregnant and was ordered by her doctor uh, to go to the hospital to be induced for labor. This was on June 19th, 1996, midday. Just same day and time of the murder. Okay. <laughs> right? And so that's she, a memorable... Memorable experience. I yes. Mean, she's going into labor. She, and so she clearly remembers that day and um, clearly remembers telling uh, that Richard was there and telling him that he has to go because she's got to go to the hospital. Uh, their son was born... June 20th, 1996, you know, the next day. Um, just wanted to note, John Torres now is a Palm Beach County Sheriff's Jeopardy, um, Sheriff Deputy, excuse me. Obviously, he wasn't then. It's 20 years ago. He was young. But I wanted to mention that because he couldn't, and we'll get into it a bit later, but um, he had to be pretty reputable to interview uh, back then, no, if you're going to become a cop, you can't have really much of a background, right? right. So it would have behooved, the, you know, if the cops went and interviewed him and all these other people, they would have found their 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 good alibi. Right, a good alibi witness. Trust, trustworthy. Right. Sorry, I digress. So according to John, uh, not one call or letter from NYPD regarding their alibi testimony ever came in. John actually ended up calling Richard's attorney because he wanted to help, and he never heard back for over a year. Then sometime before the trial, Richard's attorney called and asked both of them to testify, and they did. But clearly, 12 jurors, jurors did not believe the alibi or even Richard, who testified on his own behalf. Uh, the prosecution painted Richard out to be a liar because he failed to disclose his robbery charge, and due to the close relationship between John and Janine, the jury was told they shouldn't consider their testimony as being reliable. Okay. <laughs> so Minerva which is Richard's wife, who was in New York at the time, wired money to Richard in Florida during this whole time. And her statement matches Richard John Janine's statement. Everybody is saying the same thing of what happened, where Richard was, when Richard was, and all of that. Um, He was in Florida because his friend was having a baby. Um, John Torres' parents, Fernando and Margarita, 
They were also listed as alibis, and they remember Richard being there because their daughter-in-law was having a child, (laughs) right? And uh, John's father is a pastor. Again, a really reliable, you know... Somebody who would hold weight in court, like, morally, I guess, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that's just, you know, to me, yeah, I don't know why these people weren't called. Um, A lawyer did call their house, but they were asking for John. And, again, this was over a year after the arrest. Fernando, so John's father, actually offered to testify, but the attorney said it wasn't necessary. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> needless, to, needless to say, none of the alibis were contacted other than John and Janine. More alibis include family members who live next door to the Torreses and a friend who is now, a f- and again, I, I mentioned this, he is now a federal corrections officer. And I mention this again because he, people are not going to have a record or any. Thing, you know, like a burglary charge. Well, if you're presenting them to a jury saying like, hey, take these people's word for what mm-hmm. they're saying, take them at their word. Right. These people would probably, based on their careers, likely be reliable Time, been good. to the jury, right? You know what yeah. I mean? So, I, you know, I think maybe the they were kind of getting caught up in the fact that, well, he has so many alibis and clearly they coordinated. Yeah. It's so odd. But when you explain that it's because they were having a that his friends were having a child Mm -hmm. to me that makes sense because that's such like a memorable moment and it makes sense that why so many people he could say that yeah 13 people saw me because well yeah it's a big deal when you were born (laughs) you know uh there's a lot of people at the hospital yeah well i remember when all my siblings were born well with the exception of the one who's just younger than me but i was young and i remember Mm -hmm. the day they were born and everybody being there so Mm -hmm. and i was six so right so something ever happened on that day we could all you know it's very hard to recollect where you were tell, ask me where I was last weekend I don't know yeah you know, I wouldn't I, be able to tell you but on the day you were born I know exactly where I was right you know? so those things I think are very you know um, important and you remember those things so and when yeah when you take that into account these witnesses I guess become credible again at least in my opinion they become yeah. you know I, I wouldn't it would be a lot to have all of these people kind of grouped together and hatch this really intense, very detailed murder plot for someone that the police can't even connect Richard Rosario and George Clauso together. I, yeah, exactly. You know? like, really good point. I know. So it's just, but I think they didn't even, didn't even call. Right. It sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it so. doesn't sound like they bothered to. Yeah. They didn't bother. They, hey, they had two eyewitnesses, right? Cause that's super reliable. So, um, you know, so the next part, Dan, he goes to talk to the detectives, and this is where I'm going to get a bit worked up. Detective Irwin Silverman uh, took Richard's statement. Dan Sleepy and interviewed him in Yonkers, New York. His nickname is Silky, and he has to be called that. Okay. Silky. I just like saying Silky. Uh, per Silky, he does not remember much of the case. You know, he just took the statement. Um, he played a minor role in the whole thing. Uh, however... Um, he did take a statement as alibis, he said, when asked, you know, by Dan, you're like, you know, natural question, right? What do you do with a statement with alibis, especially like this many alibis? Who follows up? He says, it's not my responsibility, but the lead detective. So I gave whatever lead detective. What do you want me to do? You know, that's, or it's the DA's responsibility. Basically, he just washes his hands. I just take the statement, you know, what do you do? So Dan speaks with then, well, sorry, excuse me, let me repeat that. Dan now speaks with Detective Charles Kruger. Uh, he showed, uh, so Charles Kruger actually showed the uh, eyewitnesses the books, um, the photo books. And his demeanor is, this is what really kind of gets my goat a bit. His, he's like, well, someone picks him out of the book. You know, what do you want? It's irrelevant what he says. You can say anything he wants. Witness picks him out of a book. I got an eyewitness then. So, <laughs> so we could do, I feel like, a whole episode on eyewitness testimony right. because it's so unreliable. It's so it's unreliable, but people tend to put a lot of weight in it when like making decisions, especially a jury. Especially a jury, which is insane. Um, they they find it a reliable source of information, and I kind of get it because. You know, you would like to believe that, like, your memory is exactly, like, what you saw. that you're, What you think. Your yeah. brain isn't, like, filling in gaps, but naturally that's what your brain does. Mm-hmm. In twin, you know, making memories and filling things in when yeah. you recall memories. Um, and you can also have your memory kind of altered depending on the situation. Like, if there's, if you're in, like, a stressful situation mm-hmm. 
or again like filling in memories like okay if you're in a bank and it's getting robbed by somebody with a gun you're in a stressful situation right you're gonna probably only remember certain aspects of it but it may feel very real to you like you can recall it like it was yesterday there's also even um you know something called weapon focus where if you're kind of confronted with a weapon Mm -hmm. you focus on that kind of to the exclusion of maybe smaller details which again makes sense you have a gun in my head yeah Yeah, absolutely (laughs) and you're also susceptible to leading questions from Say like a police was he, officer. Yeah, was he wearing a gray hoodie? You know, yeah, right. oh. yeah, that seems right. Because I remember, you know, um, you know where we live. Just to give a bit of a picture, uh, we have a big sliding window in our house, and we can see the roofs of other houses. Mm. And I was um, looking out the window, and I saw three men crawling on the roofs. Oh, <laughs> yeah, me and Emily actually did too, right? So didn't put, quite put it together at first, and then I'm like oh, I saw cops. They're running from the cops. Oh, So okay. then I decided to start trying to look to see what, you what they remember. look like. Yeah. yeah, and I caught the last guy. I saw a skin color, and he was wearing, you know, now I don't remember, but let's say a, a gray hoodie. Mm-hmm. And when I went down to talk to the cops saying, yes, I saw these people, they kept trying to get me, well, what were the other two wearing? And I just know, just knowing this, just having this, being cognizant of the fact that I know, I, I think I could probably remember what they looked like, but I couldn't say 100% because I know it's just my brain mm-hmm. going, yeah, I think they're all black. I, but I couldn't say that for sure, so I... I wouldn't tell them. I said, right. I don't know what the other two look like, but I could tell you what the third one was wearing mm-hmm. and what color skin he had. And that's about it. And that's as far as I was going to go because I could have probably, you know, cause I'm like, I think I remember they're all black, but again, it's just my brain. Like all of a sudden I'd I'm rather and it's like, not say, yeah, if, if I'm, I'm not a hundred percent. Yeah. And that wasn't even a stressful situation. That was just me. And I clearly watched the three climb on that roof right mm-hmm. over here and jump down. But you know, again, I, I just, I wasn't, paying attention enough to say right but I know my brain was trying to do it so anyway that's just the point it's just memory works like that and we found an interesting uh statistic that uh they found that eyewitness testimony has been wrong 33 percent of the time which makes again makes sense you know yeah eyewitness testimony I see how you want it to be very reliable because you want you know to think that your brain is not I don't want to say playing tricks on you, but filling in gaps. Like, you know what you saw. Yeah, yeah, I know what what I saw. saw. But that's not always the case. And then innocent people go to jail. Right. Um, So that's just, oh, gosh, that makes, yeah, yeah. So back to, you know, the detective going, well, we, you know, picked him out of a book, right? Um, So Dan shows him the video of the alibi interviews he took. And... Then the detective, Charles, says, well, they seem credible. If he was in Florida, then he shouldn't be in prison. (laughs) I'm like, really? (laughs) Because you're part of the reason why he's there. So Dan asked, again, it begs the question, what should he have done? He turned himself in. He gave you alibis. He gave you a bus ticket. What else could this guy have done? And this is what really got me. He sits there, the detective, Charles, with his arms crossed, goes, I don't know what he could have done if he could have done anything else. Whoever is his first attorney must have done a terrible job. Just like that. No remorse, no answer, just taking the blame somewhere else. You know, I don't know what else he could have done. So <laughs> just, ugh, you know, I, yeah. I have a bunch of caps in my notes here <laughs> that yeah. I cannot repeat. But <laughs> I'm just like, seriously, that's your attitude, you know, like... Oh, well, you know, just guys, 20 years of his life gone, you know, whatever. It just like maybe isn't making the connection how this is, you know, he's partially responsible for this. Yeah. In some way, maybe. Uh, Even though some like remorse or at least like, oh, shit, you know, mistakes were made. Would have been nice on his part, I think. Especially like in the sentence before that, you're going, well, 13 alibis, please. He could say whatever he wants. It's like, well, here are his alibis. Oh, well, that's incredible. Well, you know, you would have known that too if you would have investigated it. So, yeah, right. Um, so that was that. So now on to Richard's defense team. <laughs> uh, so speaking of the attorneys, right, as he mentions, Richard did have two public defenders, uh, Joyce Hartsfield, and uh, she had the case for about a year, and then she asked to be dismissed for personal reasons. You don't really know why. I don't necessarily even think it was dismissed from just his case. It might, I think, there wasn't really clear. She might have just been dismissed from her job for a bit okay. something like yeah. that um so then she handed the case over to S- Stephen kaiser 
uh, Joyce did petition and got approval for a defense investigator uh, expenses to be paid, so defense investigator expenses, to be paid for them to go to Florida to investigate all these alibis. Because I'm going to assume as an attorney, you're going to realize this is a, you know, we shouldn't be investigating this as, you know, make or break the case, right? When she handed the case over to Kaiser, however, she told him that that petition was denied. So basically, between the police and his public defenders, nobody investigated Richard's alibis. Not even his defense attorney. <laughs> and, it, and I really wondered, though, too, like, why didn't he call Kaiser, his second defense attorney, why didn't he call and, like, repetition? And if he actually would have looked in the file, he would have realized that it actually was approved. So even though she told him the wrong information, if he would have looked, because I would assume he'd, like, you'd have to be able to get those expenses approved. You know, I've worked at a, you know, not, not a criminal uh, law firm, but I understand how that all works. You need to get approval for expensive and right. expenses and things like that. So it just begs the question, why wouldn't he have tried to re-petition for it? And then he would have realized it was approved and then gotten that all paid for. So, uh, unfortunately, you know, that's who he had to, to defend him. So five years so we're going to fast forward a bit, five years, because we know he basically got, he got convicted. <laughs> so, right. you know, so, so let's uh, go five years um, after his conviction. In 2003, Chip Lowenson took Richard's case on. He's a, um, a fellow Yale classmate asked Chip to represent Richard on appeal uh, pro bono. Chip said yes, figuring this was a slam dunk, clear cut. This was not a fail tri- fair trial due to ineffective representation. I mean, he just figured this is easy. Got it. No problem. <laughs> Six years after the, uh, his conviction, Richard actually did win a, apparently a really rare legal victory, a new hearing before a judge. Okay. Right? Um, Chip, who was representing him, his lawyer, brought seven alibi witnesses, and the judge ended up denying the motion for a new trial. Okay. <laughs> In his judgment, he stated, the judge, that he found that the additional witnesses were questionable and not as persuasive as the original witnesses that were discounted by the original jury. And in spite of the quote-unquote mistake made by his attorneys, they represented him with integrity and, I quote, professional, competent, and a dedicated fashion. Oh. The judge also wrote that the people's case was strong, and his conviction was, quote-unquote, amply supported by the evidence. The motion was denied, Chip his appeal, you know, appellate attorney was dumbfounded by the decision, which I am too. I, I, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you have, because again, you, you, the, the, the witnesses, the alibis I think are such a big deal because again, it, you know, I know we said it earlier, it, it paints a picture of why he was there. You know, it's not just, hey, all these people saw me. You know, this was, you know, so if you bring all these people, and I see why he brought seven up, it's like, seven seven up seven <laughs> alibis up yeah that you know it's like this is the picture that happened they were having a baby you know here's a ticket they all see he was there look at these people so i uh, have several comments none of them are eloquent <laughs> about this whole thing let it rip. i mean <laughs> oh, wow okay yeah so naturally richard wrote you know he wrote several letters to his attorneys expo- expressing his frustration and his innocence um so it's just, you know, again, you know, from us, from the outside, we're going, what the heck? So back to Dan's investigation. So Dan, um, and sometimes I would love to be, I think, a, a journal, journalist. Uh, oh, doing yeah, this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, so he tries to find eyewitnesses, Dan. He's like, that's, you know, it's a good thing to do, right? So um, he did find Robert Davis, and Robert Davis was the eyewitness that was sweeping the street. The porter. The porter, right. yeah, okay. and interviewed him. Um and so according to Robert, he said he saw three people coming towards him. They were arguing, which is interesting, so not really in the report. but Yeah. Um, then he heard a shot and ran over to help, and then he talked to Michael Sanchez. Robert says Michael said he knew the shooter. However, Sanchez told the police that he did not know the shooter. Oh. So that was kind of interesting. Um, Robert uh, could not identify anyone in the book, and this is, you know, according to Robert, you know, this interview, he said he couldn't identify anybody in the book. Then they came back to him afterwards and after talking to Sanchez, Michael Sanchez, 
then brought two pictures to Davis, Robert Davis, and said, was one of these guys the shooters? And Davis uh, pointed to the picture of Richard and says, he was sure it's that guy. I just want to stress again that, you know, the picture, the mugshot picture of Richard yeah. Rosario is, I mean, not a clear picture. It doesn't look like him, really. It'd be too. one of those things where you'd only, be, I feel like you would only be able to identify them if you knew that person. If I saw a picture of you like that, mm-hmm. I feel like that's Eileen. Right. right. If I saw someone in a stressful situation and, you know, didn't probably didn't get a very good look at them and then was given this grainy picture and said, does this look like them? Mm-hmm. It looks like a number of people because right. again, half his features are like shadowed out in the picture. Right. It's, yeah. So Dan shows Robert Davis the videos of the alibis. Now Davis, Robert Davis now seems, you know, through the interviews start saying that cops told him to point out Richard. He's basically saying he was coerced to point out Richard. Um, I should note, though, uh, Detective Bobby is immediately skeptical skeptical of Robert Davis and thinks he's pliable and could probably get him to say anything. Um, you know, and, and I feel like that's kind of true because during the interview with Dan, he was sure he had the right guy. He went from being like, yeah, I was sure it was the right guy to basically saying the cops made him do it, right? So... That's kind of, I don't know, what to do. do. Maybe he's trying to just give the cops the answer they want. Yeah, or give Dan the answer he wants. You know, who knows? So it's kind of, I don't know how to take that. So Dan then goes to, um, wants to talk to George's sister. And he interviews his sister, Wanaka, and she talks about George and the murder and you know again George was 17 years old when he died and he was the youngest of five kids he's the only boy just to give some background on him um and then Wanaka and one of her sisters actually went and visited Richard they said Richard couldn't look at them he seemed exasperated and angry they decided right then and there they had the right person they were satisfied he was in prison when Dan you know just asked Richard about that visit mm-hmm. uh you know he said that it was weird speaking to them he believes he gave them condolences um but he did say he was probably a bit irritated because you know he was locked up <laughs> and for something he didn't do yeah, he, he wasn't gonna be like thrilled yeah he's, he's like in a, a horribly awkward situation on top of being in prison which is an awful situation yeah, yeah so, so he's like yeah I probably wasn't the most talkative person given the situation so Dan showed Wanaka the alibi videos. She still doesn't believe it. She still thinks Richard did it. But something interesting to note during their talk, Wanaka mentioned that she was not shocked that George was murdered. Okay. He was scared, and he, he was scared that he was a target, she said. He knew someone was after him. He was carrying a gun for protection. Uh, she thinks that this was a personal hit and not a random killing. Um, like the you know the police reports say apparently George slapped a girl in the neighborhood she disrespected him Monica said George told her uh, George uh, told the girl uh, sorry I'm tripping over my words there anyways George told Monica that the girl that he slapped threatened him that's what I was trying to get out sorry about that (laughs) she doesn't say how she, she threatened him just that he threatened him and he's carrying a gun now um but what was even more interesting was she said that the girl was Mikey's girlfriend, quote unquote. So the guy who was with George when he was Michael shot. Sanchez. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Michael. So apparently George slapped Michael Sanchez's girlfriend, who then turned around and threatened him. And he was so nervous about this that he was actually carrying a gun for protection. I, yeah, I guess I just don't understand how, you know, they can, she can think, the sister can think that this is a hit. And then also be like, but I do believe that Richard Rosario did it. Because, again, there's, there's no, no connection. connection. And unless Richard Rosario has a connection to the girlfriend, but it doesn't seem like she has a connection there either. Not in the police reports anyway, right. not according to Richard as well. But not even in the police did they put Richard any sort of connection to any anyone there. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, in their mind, it's a random shooting by Richard, but then you have this basically, you know, looking like not a random shooting. Based on what the sister says alone, because like Detective Bobby said, he doesn't think that this is a random crime. It looks like a hit. Based on what the sister says, 
I, Sounds that like a hit. almost confirms in my mind that it, that would be probably your best lead. Yeah. yeah. Is that this was like some sort of retaliation. Right. Uh, according to the police reports, the men were hanging around earlier. Uh, a hot dog vendor who was on the street said that they had guns. It was almost like they were waiting for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way he was killed, shot in the face, that's very personal. And and the shooter let a witness live. Again, I come back to that. Like, why, you know, how? Yeah, why would, if you're going to go so far to kill somebody over something so random, you wouldn't, you know, I would assume you would boom, boom, shoot both of them. You're so angry. <laughs> to shoot somebody for bumping into you. And, um, so, yeah, I think it just makes more sense now what, you know, and it's interesting that Bobby sort of picked up on that pretty much right away, that this isn't random. No. And now he goes and he's, you know, he found the first eyewitness, talks to him, and it's kind of neither here nor there, and then he talks to Wanaka, and it's like, oh, well, now, now it really is starting to sound not like a random hit and not Richard. Um, so... Dan, you know, sleeping, actually ends up getting a hold of Michael Sanchez's number. Um, he called. Michael answered. Said it wasn't a good time, though. Can you call me back? And has never answered Dan's call since. <laughs> right. It's just not been a good time this whole time. Yeah. So, you know, Dan starts digging a little bit deeper. Like, what's this slapping about? Michael's girlfriend. Like, you know, you start getting all this more information. You're like, the plot thickens here. What's going on? So... Apparently, the police actually knew about this whole slapping incident. Really? It was in their reports, deep down there. Um, okay. Michael told the cops about it. I don't know why or how it was brought up, but he told the cops and mentioned George and his girlfriend didn't get along. Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of interesting. So, clearly, there's something going Yeah, uh, Michael's girlfriend, Lamari Leon, was interviewed and in the report, it was mentioned that two weeks prior to the shooting, she filed a harassment report against George. For slapping her. For slapping her. Okay. Dan actually filed a request for that report to the NYPD via the Freedom of Information Act. It came back denied, and NYPD said only Lamari Leon could get it, since she's the one who filed it. Dan tracked Lamari Leon down. She doesn't seem to remember filing a report. She said she was only friends with Michael Sanchez, so completely contradicting two things here that were in the reports, but she'll help Dan get the report. Never heard from Dan again. But I don't know, why would that Freedom of Information Act, like, does be denied, do you think? So, I, from what I understand, like, different police departments and states and different agencies kind of have their own rules of what information they'll release, mm-hmm. but you can always have your FOIA request denied if they think that releasing this information will hinder or compromise a different investigation or that investigation, or they're releasing information that isn't, you know, shouldn't be known to the public, especially if you're like trying to file a FOIA with like the department of Homeland security or something like very high up, like in that case, I'm wondering, but in this case, I'm wondering if the police maybe, had caught on at this point that maybe there had been some maybe miscarriage of justice mm-hmm. and were reluctant to release it. Also just in San Francisco where we are, if you're trying to get a police report, you kind of have to fill out on the form, your relationship to the case and why you're interested in it. Oh, okay. So because it says on the report to dictate basically how much information they're actually going to release to you, which I thought was interesting. Huh? Yeah, that is interesting. Um, so yeah, so that got denied. Um, now in 2013, um, it's not quite clear. Uh, Rosario actually enlisted the help of the Exoneration Initiative, um, and they're a nonprofit organization in New York City, kind of like the Innocence Project, right? And they work to, uh, free wrongly convicted, um, people. So in their investigation, uh, the attorneys, Glenn Garber and Rebecca Friedman, uh, they discovered that the police and prosecution had withheld evidence uh, helpful to the defense. So uh, the concealed evidence showed that in his initial recorded statement, Sanchez said that he did not see the gunman, a statement that would have cast doubt on his you know, testimony, right, and his identification of Rosario uh, at the trial. The police also failed to document and disclose statements from other two witnesses uh, that the gunman addressed Colazzo by name and that the getaway car had no license plate, suggesting oh. that the gunman knew 
and specifically targeted Colazzo. This is important as there is no evidence that Rosario and Colazzo ever met before this, you know, shooting. So it's just they're withholding all this stuff. Um, the initial report, I thought, only mentioned that there were two eyewitnesses. Right. That's okay. at least what seemed to be, you know, very pertinent to the case and in this report. Now there's like, yeah, so with the exoneration initiative and Dan digging around, they're finding there's actually more information and probably more investigation that went into this than is being allowed on the surface to, to be seen. Um uh, also, and I felt this was a doozy in my opinion, Nicole Torres um, was a witness interviewed at the scene of the crime. She went to school with Georgia Michael. She arrived at the scene immediately after, according to the reports. Yeah, like, where is she ever mentioned, right? right. Two decades later, she signed an affidavit, uh, <laughs> excuse me, I'm having trouble tonight, um, stating the police report was wrong and sh uh, she was there and saw the whole thing happen. She was there and saw the whole thing happen. I just want to repeat that. Okay. Yeah. She, uh, she even heard the killer say, hey, George, this is for you. They interviewed her, showed her the books. She couldn't identify anyone. They came back to her later with a single photo of a Hispanic male and asked if this was a shooter, and she said, no, it was not him. She never, she was never contacted again by the police. <laughs> Much of her testimony in the report was actually redacted, meaning it was blacked out. Um, Richard's attorneys actually got a copy of the unredacted report. Uh, and in the report, it stated that Michael Sanchez had not actually seen the shooter in that report. But then he points out Richard. Right. Yeah. So it's like, wait a minute. Yeah. Then a few hours later, all of a sudden he points out Richard. So it's kind of odd. Um, I guess the Bronx DA also did an internal investigation on this case and found that they were, you know, not at fault or hadn't done anything wrong. Of course, yeah. uh, well, that usually happens when you self-investigate, but... I've done nothing wrong. Yeah, because, you know, of course, I think that, you know, the exoneration initiative is going to be like, guys, <laughs> guys, like, come on, what's going on here? And, oh, we've done nothing wrong. We're fine. So after two decades, you know, the poor guy failed appeals, um... You know, 2014-15 was all about waiting on this new motion uh, to get a new trial. And in March in 2015, he was denied a new trial by the Bronx Supreme Court. Despite all of this new evidence presented, all the withheld evidence, all this stuff that the Exoneration Initiative pointed out, according to the Bronx Supreme, Bronx Supreme Court, he had his day in court. That happens a lot, and I find, in a lot of these cases where, yeah. you know, you find new evidence, things like that, and it goes up and up the ladder, and you had your day in court, you know. Then they would have to admit that, that they did something wrong, and people don't like to do that. So 2016, they filed another appeal. But here's where things start looking up, and I'm going to give a big shout-out to Darcel Clark. Um, a new Bronx DA, Darcel Clark, who happens to come from the same neighborhood of where the murder happened, as well as... Uh, being the first black DA in New York, was elected. Uh, Richard's attorneys asked for a meeting with Darcel two weeks before she took office, and she actually she agreed. March 2016, um, Clark sent investigators to Florida to interview the alibis. And just like that, the DA is going to vacate the conviction. They now believe that Richard did not get a fair trial. It's amazing. It's really good, and I think responsible of the DA. Yeah. Yeah, and, and she did say in the interview, she's like, I'm the head of law enforcement, and it's my job to make sure things are done accordingly, and I don't think, you know, it was. So he doesn't need to sit in jail while we investigate this case. Right. You know, uh, the family actually happened to be in New York visiting Richard when the news broke, so the attorneys got to tell him the good news. Oh. Yeah, so it was just all, all good. Um, so Dan Slepian actually went to speak with Darcel Clark. Uh, she's stated she didn't meet with the exoneration initiative. Uh, she realized that uh, he had an alibi defense that was never properly investigated to begin with, so she was surprised nobody followed up with his alibis. Uh, she's not exonerating him. She, when she's vacating the conviction pending an investigation on the crime and reviewing his case, but she basically said he doesn't need to sit in jail you know, for this. Um, so in the courtroom, the motion to vacate was granted, and they released him on his own recognizance. Um, but he does face a possible retrial. Uh, so they're gonna return in June 2016 to hear the DA's decision on whether they're gonna go ahead and retry the case or not. 
Um, so he has a criminal case pending against him, but you know he's been living in Florida with his family after being in jail for 20 years. Said it's been tough. He's adjusting, but they're just going through it together. And um, but you know he says he's not the same man. Um, How could you be? You couldn't. And you know he's mad. He says he will take nothing less than the DA saying he's innocent, and they got it wrong. He's pretty adamant about that, and I, I, I understand. So. June 23rd rolls around, the DA told, um, so Dan sits down on June 23rd with the DA, Darcel, and she basically says, we can't prove his guilt. They won't say he's quote unquote innocent, but she's like, you know, you're presumed innocent until proven guilty. We can't prove you're guilty, so you're innocent, right? <laughs> so that's kind of how she's seeing it. And I kind of understand, I'm sure there's some political stuff she's gotta she can't come out and be like oh yeah we screwed you over really bad especially if he's gonna sue you right yeah, yeah she's got and i get i get that she's just yeah. like you are innocent until proven guilty we can't prove you're guilty therefore you're innocent so june 24th rolls around the da moves to dismiss all charges and richard and his attorney stand up and they actually ask them not to dismiss dismiss the case until the da says on the record that he is innocent this stuns everyone. <laughs> Everyone's like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, the judge says, and I quote, Mr. Rosario, you realize that by doing this, you are asking to keep a murder indictment against you. This is a very unusual application, but Rosario just insisted he wanted to be proven innocent. Um, so the judge asked both prosecutors and Rosario's lawyers uh, for written arguments, leaving the case open you know, we're kind of in limbo for a while. And I wanted to read the reason, a quote from Rosario, just so you kind of know where he's coming from, he, why he wants this indictment left on him and wants an investigation. He, he says, it's clear I'm innocent. I've been in prison for 20 years saying that I'm innocent. I've been transparent, transparent and forthcoming with information to prove my innocence. And it seems like that the NYPD and the DA's office position is that the truth doesn't matter. The public should know the truth. So that's why he's pretty sticking to his guns. <laughs> pretty amazing, I think. It's pretty ballsy, in my opinion. I would be like, great. I know, I'd be like running out of I'm the I'm out door. of here. Yeah. But I can understand why he'd want, you know, to be told, you know, on the record that he's innocent. Yeah, not that we just can't prove you're guilty. You know, and, yeah. I, and I do get the other side. I get, I think credit has to go with, with the new DA. I mean, that was awesome. She, I mean... She didn't railroad them or try and, you know, delay releasing. No, and actually she, I think, did the right thing. No, we, we should have never prosecuted you to begin with, you know. Um, she probably can't say that, and I, and I get that. There's got to be some politics there. Oh, so definitely. November 2016 uh, rolls around, and this is after uh, convictions, the series I've been kind of going off of and following, right? So uh, November 14th rolls around, and they officially dropped all the charges against Rosario. While they won't say he's innocent, uh, they did dismiss the case, and Rosario's defense attorneys are happy that it's over, and it would have been, you know, quote unquote, would have been nice to get more, but it is what it is. And Rosario hasn't determined if he's gonna file a lawsuit over his wrong conviction yet or not. Um, but I did find you can follow Richard's journey back into society, if you will, on his Facebook page, and I'll have a link there for that. But in the end, um, you know, he's out, he's with his family, and I think that, I mean, it's amazing you have this whole huge story of things happening, 20 years of frustration, and then, what, two years? It yeah. wrapped up like that. And it comes down to some guy picking him out of a lineup, mm -hmm. you know, one time. But it's kind of interesting, because you, you feel like you, you have the case here, right? And it's like, oh, we have these two eyewitnesses, and this is what happened. He came, and he shot him, and that was it. But then you start getting into those deeper cases, the redacted items and the reports and things like that. And all of a sudden you have more witnesses and Basically other people have a whole interviewed. New story. Yeah, a whole new story, but somehow they decided to go with Richard anyway. Yeah. yeah. Why is that? I don't know. <laughs> that's, you know, and why were none of his alibis? I mean, that's just to me the kicker is why were none of his alibis ever contacted by anyone? It's just such a miscarriage, I think, of justice. And it's, so scary to think this is one of how many cases across the United States. Whenever I watch some of these, you know, documentaries and things like that, I mean, 
you know, we were watching the staircase and I just keep thinking, man, I would be totally out of luck if something happened like to Emily for something. And I was pinned as a suspect. The money that it would take to mount a defense, then you'd probably be stuck with a public defender and they are overworked and I get that, you know, so it's just, and then stuff like this happens. I mean, they, the police all, clearly had what Bobby thought mm-hmm. going on. Right. They're interviewing people. They were putting that, that together. But yeah. why? I guess you had two eyewitnesses and arrest. So throw them in jail. That's it. You know, move case closed. Right. right? Yeah. It's so unfortunate. Yeah. So um, that actually wraps us up for today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you can visit our website, misconductpodcast.com, to leave your thoughts and comments on today's case. Uh, any links for further reading and other content, kind of like Eileen had mentioned earlier, will be posted below the episode. Uh, our episodes are available on SoundCloud and iTunes, and you can visit our Facebook page or our Instagram page uh, for additional kind of content. We post a kind of a teaser intro post every Monday. And as always, if you'd like to email us suggestions for an upcoming episode, you can do so via the website. We'd love to hear from you guys. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.